You know, the percentage of people in the United States that take Christianity seriously, at least as they go to church, is about twice that in Great Britain. So you can imagine the hornet's nest that Prime Minister David Cameron stirred up a couple of years ago when in celebration of the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible, he said that Britain is a Christian country and we should not be afraid to say so. He went on to say that the Bible has helped Britain uh, give Britain a set of values and morals which made Britain what it is today. And then he said that the King James Bible has bequeathed a body of language that permeates every aspect of our culture and our politics. And of course, he was talking about the king's English. What about our language? Well, listen to a few phrases and we'll talk about it. You know, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. And that's just a drop in the bucket. You know, there's a fly in that ointment. And she is involved with the labor of love. You know, tonight, we've got a blood moon. You know, he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he's at his wit's end. He bit the dust. He gave up the ghost. There's no rest for the wicked. You better put your house in order. We've got to see eye to eye. You know, you better walk the straight and narrow. She is the apple of his eye. You know, that's like the blind leading the blind. The writing is on the wall. You reap what you sow, and of course, count the costs. And if you haven't already recognized, those are all from the Bible, and we use them all the time. Uh, and that's great that the Bible has influenced our language, and, and we use those things, but, the, but we do tend to, to use those in a routine manner. You know, we don't really think about the context and what they really mean. How many times have you heard or even said that Christians are to be salt and light? Well, today we want to take a look at whether we're going to follow the world's advice and go light on the salt, or whether we're going to follow God's advice and be salty light. Uh, and I want to say up front, I need to apologize uh, we are going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're summarizing uh, messages from two or three years ago on the Beatitudes, trying to combine some, and there's just too much to get into salt and light in one message, so I'm going to have to continue next month. But what that means is we're going to be kind of light, excuse the pun, on application today. This is going to be more on the, the biblical foundation for both. Uh, what comes to your mind when you hear the other phrase, the salt of the earth? Isn't it just good, down-to-earth, common people? Okay? Now, whatever it is, the connotation is something good. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, there's a statement there. You are, and the emphatic second person plural pronoun with the article and the predicate says, you, you alone, you only, and no one else 
or the salt. Now, so, who is you? Well, some have said, well, he was talking to the apostles, so that's who you is. Others have said, oh, no, no, it applies today. It's the pastor. It's the minister. It's the priest. You know, only those who are called to that higher form of living. But neither the grammar nor the context allows such a limited application. You really means all true believers, all those who live out the beatitudes, the blessedness, the qualities that we've just gone through prior to these verses. Okay, we're salt. So what? Put another way, what's the significance of being salt beyond a description of being good, trustworthy people? Well, salt is so plentiful today that we not only cast it out underfoot, but also tire of men. But in biblical times, it was a precious commodity. In fact, Roman soldiers were paid with a salt ration, which could be bartered for just about anything else. That was called a salarium, from which we get our word salary. In the Old Testament, Sacrifices were always made with salt. Leviticus 2, every oblation of your meat offering shall be seasoned with salt. Salt's something that is considered to be pure, holy, acceptable unto God. Throughout Scripture, salt is symbolic of the covenant between God and man. And uh, in ancient times, it was symbolic of fidelity, purity, friendship. People would make Salt covenants between themselves. Now, as to applications in this, we've only got time for a few. Salt is a preservative. It's an agent to arrest corruption. And in the context of the previous qualities that we see in the Beatitudes, believers are charged with the power, the moral influence that opposes and counteracts corruption. So, the bad news. This might surprise you. But there is corruption all around us. And Daniel's great vision showed him that all the worldly powers would decay. They'd go from gold in their primacy to silver to brass and then to iron and finally to clay. History started with Adam, who was made from clay. And it will end with everything in clay, dust. Think about it. Everything that man builds... Everything in this gym will one day be in a landfill and will decompose into dust. We, reality is that we are all headed in the same direction. We're blind if we don't see that we are on a path of accelerated decay and that we are headed there. First, let's look at the family. The family is falling apart. Marriages are breaking up and, and being scattered. The very concepts of marriage and family have disintegrated. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, fully one-third of all children do not have a father in their lives. The world seems to take at least three approaches to marriage. One is to ignore it. It's called cohabitation, shacking up. The problem with this is that it leaves women and especially children vulnerable to unreliable sources of stability. There's no commitment financially, legally, or emotionally. 
according to the U.S. Census Bureau, again, about one in five children uh, is born to unmarried cohabitating parents. And two in five are expected to live in a cohabitating family by the time they are 12 years old. This hits minority children especially hard. The percentage of children who live in two-parent married homes for uh, white non-Hispanics, 74%, 59% of Hispanics, and only 33% of black children. Another approach is simply to redefine marriage. Uh, in marriage, God did not ordain a label, but rather a relationship. But you know that times have changed when Christians who defend marriage are accused of bigotry and cramming their religion down the throats of others by the same people who demand that we not only recognize, but that we celebrate with them what the Bible calls sin. And they have the backing of some judges and the force of law in some places. The shadows of persecution are gathering, and in the near future, perhaps in this year, the U.S. Supreme Court may, we don't know, but may find that marriage is not limited and cannot be limited to one man and one woman. Another approach, probably the most common, is to simply compromise marriage. A significant portion of our populace still believes that marriage is valuable. They look on it favorably. But more is made of the form the show, the wedding, than of the 24-7, lifelong, selfless sacrifice, commitment, and responsibilities of marriage. The resultant, because we don't prepare for marriage, the resultant high divorce rate is used as justification for options one and two above. Another area, our government has increasingly exercised greater control over our lives at the expense of individual responsibility and voluntary charity. You heard this week that the unemployment rate has gone down. What you, what you didn't hear is that's largely because many fewer people are looking for work. So it decreases the, the general pool. Uh, Barely one-half of all adults pays income tax in the United States. Uh, these, and though therefore they're supporting the other half that does not. If these non-tax-paying voters realize that they can demand more benefits, then we are headed for a social conflict and eventual collapse, much like we've seen in Europe. But you say... Okay, that's all right. We still have the church as a solid rock. But if we are honest, a strong argument can be made that the church has abdicated its role to the government to provide for the needy and at the same time adopted a form, a big show over substance, which would be truth in love. The researchers give us the stark reality on the whole the bigger churches become, the less they spend on missions. Period. Seems amazing. But that's what the figures show. Let's be quick to add. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, at Lion and Lamb, for those of you who are newer, uh, this body regularly gives 20% or more to 
ministries and missionaries outside of this body, which we, we, uh, we recognize every week. It's clear that the basic institutions of our society are teetering and some of the structures of our society and the church that may look healthy on the outside are rotting on the inside. It's only a matter of time before they collapse under their own weight. 2 Timothy 3, Paul said that in the last days, men will have the form of godliness, but they'll deny the power thereof. Jesus had another way to put it. He said he called them whitewashed tombstones, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now with that backdrop, there is some good news. You are the salt of the earth. Let's get the big picture here. Let's look at this geopolitically first. Our country got its start largely because of the gospel and the desire for freedom of worship. Its founders were, on the whole, Christian, albeit of various communities. The principles of the Bible largely influenced the making of our Constitution. If you remember Alexis de Tocqueville, who said that America is great only because America is good. So the question would be, while we are far from perfect here, what would the world be like without the United States? In the last hundred years or so, the U.S. has protected not only its own shores, but those of other countries against evil aggressors and tin-pot dictators from various countries. And we now lead the battle against various factions who are guided by the fundamental tenet of kill the infidel and even other Muslims who don't agree with us. Without the United States, with its Christian foundation, how successful do you suppose our allies would be in its fight against Islamic terrorism? To the individual believer whittling this down, Jesus is saying that it is simply criminal for a Christian to isolate himself, stand on the sidelines, and wait for the great collapse of society. Jesus went into the city. He looked around and he wept because he cared about the people who were there. We need to be salt in the world because of the awful corruption, depravity, and sinfulness of this world system around us. Arresting corruption involves preservation. Of course, in the ancient world, there was no refrigeration, so you had to salt your meat to keep it fresh for a while. Now, there's a caution here when we use this analogy. Humanity is a stubborn lot. And because of that, in the context of, of these verses, Matthew 18 and the verses just, or Matthew, excuse me, 5.13 and the verses immediately preceding are in essence saying, you, my followers, are the salt of the earth and you must be rubbed into the flesh of the world uh, to halt that decay. And because you're the salt of the world, as you are rubbed into the world, it will cause a reaction. You see, the man that rejects God is like an open wound. And when you come in with a humble yet righteous, productive, and encouraging spirit, you are rubbing salt in that wound. And that annoyance and distress caused in his life brings a resentment against you, and hence the persecution that we studied in verses 11 and 12. Uh, if we don't live and speak the truth in love as Jesus did, their sin becomes the accepted norm. Salty Christians should affect the world around them 
to, to reduce the crime rate, restrain ethical corruption, promote honesty, and raise the conscience of unbelievers. Elevate the general moral environment. I was talking to Barry Feger some time ago, and as some of you may know, the Rescue Mission and several other ministries went into uh, East Avondale School over in the Highcrest high neighborhood. And he told me that the police have said, since they have come there, the crime rate in that community has been cut in half. Just by being there. Just by having a presence. Just by being salt. Can you imagine what the presence of salt would be in our government, our business, education, and families? Imagine what it would be like without the salt of Christians in those institutions. Jesus also said to us that salt adds taste. It flavors things. Certain foods just aren't quite very good without salt. And the Christian witness is supposed to be like what salt is to food. In a worried world, Christians should be the ones who remain unflappable, peaceful. In a depressed world, we should be the man or the woman who remains in full joy. Our culture tends to numb itself down with, if not drugs, entertainment. Just look at all the people looking at screens for most of the day. A Christian should be salt in the sense that if you're bored, it, in, in contrast to the boredom of the world, you, we should be the most excited to live each day when we get up. And think of the influence we would have in society if we were more courteous, if we worked harder, were better employees, if we produced the best musicians and businessmen and craftsmen and students, and we had the most fun. That's what salt would be in the world. Salt causes thirst. Jesus made people thirsty for God. He attracted some people to God, the Pharisees and the legalists, no. But the ordinary sinners were drawn to him. The question is obvious. Do we make people thirsty for living water? Finally, the Lord Jesus said that salt can become tasteless. Look at the rest of verse 13. If the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? No longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. It's been said that the church, if the church is not affecting the world, the world is affecting the church. If we're not salting the world, you know what that means. The world is rotting us. And if so, we are good for nothing. So do you see, do we see ourselves as part of God's plan? Are we living our lives as salt on the earth? Is the church really doing its best to arrest corruption, uh, preserve influence, and create a thirst for God? Lord willing, we'll return to this issue next month, and you might be a little bit surprised by what you hear then. After explaining the character of one sold out to God in the Beatitudes and then that true believers are the salt of the earth, Jesus states, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When, God, when the Lord said to his disciples, you, you are the light of the world, what did he mean? 
How can we be the light of the world? Well, just as salt is for corruption, so light is for darkness. In this passage, Jesus teaches us that those who believe in him are the light of the world. We've got to remember that we can function as such only because of our essential relationship with him. He alone is the true light of the world since he is God, the source of light, the word, the logos, the revelation of God. With this picture, he seeks to get us to face our purpose and our function as his people, to let our light shine, but we do this only to the degree that we receive light from Jesus Christ, who is the one, uh, as the sun is to the moon, so is he, so are we to him. Our true responsibility is to reveal the Lord Jesus by the light of his glorious life. Uh, Christ starts the Greek emphatic, with a Greek emphatic pronoun, you are the light of the world. Just like the salt passage, this stretches you and you alone, true believers. And this means that if mankind is ever going to find solutions to its problems in any area of life, spiritually and morally speaking, it must come through the ministry of the body of Christ as revealed, as it reveals the Lord Jesus to the world that lies in darkness. The church alone has the answers because it alone knows the Savior. It's interesting that the world is often talking, is, is often talking about how enlightened it is. It has great hopes for its programs for reform and change. But the only enlightenment that really brings spiritual aid to society is through those who know Christ and the Word of God. In history, there was a period called the Enlightenment, but its base was paganism, and it led to many instances of darkness and distortions. For instance, the French Revolution, which came out of the, of, of the Enlightenment, was hideously cruel and bloody and failed to lead to true freedom. But the earlier Reformation, based on the light of the Word, had a completely different result. The Western culture today has largely abandoned our Christian heritage and the light of the Lord and the moral, political, and social breakdown that we see in society is the result. The phrase, of the world, again serves to emphasize the spiritual condition of the world around us. It lies in a, in a state of darkness. No matter how hard it tries, if it acts autonomously apart from God, only darkness can result. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, he refers to false prophets, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. And as such, Satan has his false prophets in religion, in humanism, in mysticism, but they only lead men from God into darkness. Only God, as he did in his creation, can break through the spiritual chaos and darkness of the world and bring order, light, and life. There is a world out there lying in darkness, and it will only experience genuine light to the, to the degree that the church, the body of Christ, reveals Christ and truth through its word. This is the primary function of light, though it may also be used for warmth. 
but the world is dark in chaos, in death, and cold without the Savior. Now, Jesus uses a couple of metaphors here to help us understand our function and purpose. We have the city on the hill, and we have a lamp under a basket. And by these figures of contrast, he demonstrates to us just how ridiculous it is for the subjects of his kingdom, a kingdom of light, to fail to function as designed. And that's precisely the problem. The church and believers are like this. Our record of shining the light is, well, not so good. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Whatever's on a hill can be seen by everybody around the hill. Uh, It stands out. It's clearly visible, which is, of course, the function of light. Webster defines light as something which enables you to see or that which makes vision possible. In other words, light and sight go together, and we are to give sight to a world in in darkness. Now, I've never been there, but I understand in the Holy Land, uh, if you travel there, you can see that many of the villages were built on the tops of hills. And in the darkness of night, the light of the houses on the hills could not be hidden. From a great distance, one knew the location of the next village because of the light from that hilltop. In other words, the cities became a beacon for travelers who could literally travel from village to village by the light that they saw. And when we live a truly Christ-like life, when he abides in us, and we take on the character of Christ, it elevates us in a sense and makes us distinct in the sense of being more visible. It draws in the lost because godly character stands out in a world of darkness. It's something which you can't hide. It becomes obvious to all around. You can't hide a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Of course, that's exactly the issue. Are we really walking with Jesus Christ day to day, or do we have a relationship which could be characterized as superficial? Well, verse 15 goes on to the figure of a lamp. Why does anyone light a lamp? Obviously, to bring light to a dark room. A man does not light a lamp and then intensely put it under a basket. It makes the lamp kind of worthless. Uh, Yet, that's exactly what a believer can do with his or her life. God made us lamps in Jesus Christ. We're to give off light to the glory of Christ. But the baskets of carnality and worldliness and apathy and materialism, the fear of not conforming, and other types of baskets, they all cover up the light, and, and that causes us to fail in our purpose. If we do so, we are good for nothing. Just like salt that's lost its savior, so is a basket under a but, or excuse me, a lamp under a basket. We're wasting our very purpose in life as children of God. But in addition to the central fact that we are to bear light, the light, the lamp figure illustrates how believers can become and function as the light of the world. When we compare this figure with the rest of Scripture. We've got several analogies or applications. Our bodies are kind of like the earthen vessels that a, that a lamp is. And in fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? Why are we earthen vessels? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So God gets the glory. That's why we've got these vessels made of dirt. The oil in the lamp, pictured so often in Scripture, portrays the Holy Spirit, which anoints. The Father pours into our lives so that we might give life. And without the Holy Spirit and its control, we cannot bear light. The wick can be compared to the inner man, the soul and the spirit, saturated with the oil, the Holy Spirit. It is important to remember that the wick must be trimmed or else it will start to smoke and eventually go out. So this portrays the need for us in our lives to trim back those things that hinder our walk with God. We've got to confess sin, root out problems, put to death the patterns of our sin nature by reckoning and relying on His Spirit. You see that in Romans 8. When we fail or refuse to trim our wicks, our light dims, and the Father who is the lamp lighter must come along and trim and relight us through things that are not fun, discipline, testing, trials, so that we get back to the function of providing light. It's kind of like what you see in John 15, where Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, branches, and the Father is the vine dresser. And the Father prunes the branches to provide more production and to take away disease. And frankly, pruning hurts. But don't worry. Hebrews 12 tells us that those whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. What about the flame? The flame that gives off light, I think, probably symbolizes the fruit of the Spirit, the glory and the character of Christ, the gospel and of the Word. Not only Christ's life and character revealed in us, but also His message spoken by us it means life and lip, walk and talk, man and message. Now, if in ourselves we are simply earthen vessels, just old clay pots, but designed by God and recreated through spiritual regeneration, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we can give off, the light of Christ is evident. You know, science is the friend of Christianity. The more we study it, the more God is revealed in creation. It is interesting to note that God composed visible light out of three rays or groups of wavelengths, distinct from one another, but no one by, them, by themselves could be light without the other. The first ray, called actinic light, originates light and is often called invisible light because it's neither seen nor felt. Kind of sounds like God the Father. The second, luminiferous light, illuminates and is both seen and felt. Seems like that might be Jesus. The third ray, calorific light, consummates. It's not seen, but it is felt as heat. And that symbolizes, frankly, the Holy Spirit. 
If you think about it in those contexts, when God created light, he gave us the perfect analogy of the Trinity or the triunity of God. In the Trinity, God is all personal. The Trinity is all about relationship, not only within the Godhead, but with us as well. The Father relates to the Son through the Spirit. And in Galatians 4, it tells us, because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's a beautiful picture. Speaking of fathers and mothers, Proverbs 6 uses this analogy to provide a great application to the functioning of the family, starting in verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the law or the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. When you walk about, you will guide, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is life, light. And reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Now, I would not say this is a detailed description of how to parent. But it does say that dads are to take full responsibility for the direction of their family. And moms are to help dad in following that direction. It says that the dad is the head of the home and mom is the heart of the home. And they're to work together to have a successful home in harmony. You can't have a light without a lamp. And what good is a lamp if it doesn't give off light? Single parents have the huge responsibility of assuming both roles. Now, this is a big deal to me. Last summer, uh, my son Jonathan called me from the Young Life camp. Uh, and uh, he was in an unusual mood. I could tell that he was broken. And he said to me, Dad, thank you for being a dad. I said, what are you talking about? And then he went on to explain that in his cabin, everybody, all these young boys, had either a bad relationship or absolutely no relationship with their father. And when he said that, that broke me as well, because I had a taste of fatherlessness, just a taste. I grew up in a loving Christian home, but my dad had a wandering eye. And twice he left us. Um, the second time, I, um, after going through that trauma while I was in high school, I was watching a newscast of a small plane that went down in a field with my dad and the other woman in it. Our family went to the hospital and saw a very, very broken man physically. And you know, my mom could have said, you got exactly what you deserved, buddy, and walked out. But she knew how important he was to our lives. And she accepted him back. She forgave him. And she gave me a dad for the few years he had left with us. 
And when I graduated and got married and thought I was going to law school, and you know, which was my dad's dream, uh, then I came in and I said, Dad, I, I decided to go into the Marine Corps. You know, eventually he became my biggest fan, and I got a few years left with my dad. And it might have been very, very different, except for the concepts of fidelity and forgiveness that my precious mother gave me. This is huge for me, and I hope it's huge for you. Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 1 teaches us that in the beginning, when the world was formless and void, that also darkness was over the face of the deep. Then God spoke, and all of a sudden, light was created. The entire narrative of creation traces how God transformed chaos into cosmos, darkness into light. And he altered what was unprofitable without life to that which is good, profitable, and full of life. He created the sun, the moons, and the, and the plants and stars to give light to the world. Genesis 1 not only gives us the history of creation and the origin of light and life, but it reveals the redemptive purpose and plan to bring light, life, and meaning out of what is darkness, waste, and vain. Therefore, one of the great declarations of the Bible is that God is light. He's the one as light himself. He created it and he dispels all darkness. Jesus Christ, his son, in the incarnation is called the light of the world because he came to reveal God and to give man life and light more abundantly. The clearest picture of this, however, comes in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And there it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness does not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now today I've been speaking to believers. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I hope that you will not take away from this message any notion that Christians are or think that they're perfect or better than anyone else. In fact, a true Christian knows what he or she deserves, eternal death. Yet, we serve a loving and we worship a forgiving God who sent his only son to satisfy his perfect justice to the cross to pay for our sins so that we don't have to and we can spend eternity with him. If you desire the light of Christ, if you want to spend eternity with Him, then please talk to one of us today. The story of man's redemption ends with 
anticipation of a new day in eternity. A time when all darkness will be removed, both physical and spiritual. In Revelation 22, it tells us, there will be no more night. They will not need the lamp, the light of a lamp, or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. As followers of Christ, in the meantime, though, during this brief time of darkness that we have, God has given us a mission. His church has a key role. The Lord Jesus told us that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. As believers who possess the Savior and the indwelling Spirit, we are called upon to arrest corruption, preserve, and live out a tasty witness. We are to shine. The planets and the moon reflect the light of the sun. And we are to reflect the light of the Son of God. Lord God, we give you all praise. And know, Lord, that we are just earthen vessels destined to become dirt. But yet, you have bestowed upon us a great privilege to be salt and light, to humbly serve, not for our glory, but only for yours. Lord, would that we could appropriate that privilege, that we could take it on and understand what it truly means to apply your word and reach out with the love of Christ to those around us and support those who are struggling in and out of the church. We pray, Lord, that you would walk with us that you would enable us to truly be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.